welcome everyone to this episode of Beyond the Crucible. I'm Gary Schneeberger, the co-host of the podcast and the communications director for Crucible Leadership. And you've clicked play on, we hope you've clicked subscribe to, a podcast that deals in what we call crucible experiences. And you'll know what a crucible experience is because chances are you've been through one. Those are the painful moments in life, the failures, the setbacks, the traumas, tragedies. Sometimes they happen to you. Sometimes you have a hand in causing them. But what they all have in common, despite many different circumstances, is that they tend to knock the, the wind out of your sails. They tend to knock you off the trajectory of your life. They can be extraordinarily painful. But the reason that we talk about them here on, on uh, Beyond the Crucible is not so that we wallow in them. We talk about them to learn the lessons of them. We talk about them with you so that you can learn the lessons of your crucible, so that you can um, chart a course toward what we call a life of significance. And with me on uh, this podcast is the host of the podcast, the architect I've called him once before, now it's going to be twice, the Lego master of crucible leadership, <laughs> Warwick Fairfax. Warwick, welcome. Uh, this is going to be a good show. I know our guest. I've talked to her before. She's a spitfire. This is going to be a good one. Absolutely. Very much looking forward to it. Our guest, the aforementioned spitfire, is Tony uh, Munoz Kaufman. Tony Kaufman was born and raised in Mission, Texas and is known for her television production, casting, and entrepreneurial ventures. She's the host of the popular radio show and podcast, The World Class Mentors, designed to highlight and honor the powerful influence of mentors in people from all walks of life. Tony had the honor of being, the presidential trans being on the presidential transition team to bring home former President George H.W. Bush and served as his personal technology instructor and staff support manager. We could get a whole hour out of just that. Tony presented and was known as a technical evangelist for Microsoft products, and she was honored in the top 10 women in computing. Tony's productions and casting background in English and Spanish are famous for her discovery of international talent and beauty across the televised game show industry. She has produced the Latin Grammys, the Texas Music Awards, Family Feud, American Idol in Spanish, and America's Next Top Model in Spanish. Tony is well known as a corporate and marketing professional with extensive experience in communications. She has a rich background within a variety of industries and an experienced executive at management levels. Having read all that, Tony, I feel vastly underqualified <laughs> to be in this conversation. Wow. Well, Tony, thanks so much for being here. What an amazing life you've had. I mean, just the experiences and what you're doing now with helping folks be entrepreneurs and mentors sounds fabulous. But just help us understand a bit about Tony, kind of family, how you grew up, just a little bit about who Tony Kaufman is. Thank you so much. Well, um, Mission, Texas is where it all sprung from, right? But uh, my father's family, the Munoz Villarreal family, actually have been in South Texas since the 1600s. And so while that was happening, it's so funny because my mom was in Chihuahua, Mexico, 
and my grandmother was a concert pianist and she was married to a doctor and during the revolution they had to come across to uh, Pecos, Texas. So Pecos and Mission are kind of where where where, where's Texas as you get, right? <laughs> wow, wow. So when some people talk about what well, we've been here for generations, it's like you may have, but we've probably been here a few more generations <laughs> before you have. You know, for a whole well, bunch of people was, started coming into Texas, we were here. You know. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because uh, uh, the original land grant from the King of Spain was a twenty-five thousand acre land grant, and so when I found that out when I was in high school, I went to my dad who owned a farmer's insurance agency, and I went, "Dad, Dad, how much of that is mine?" And he looked at me and said, "Not that much, <laughs> but it's as deep as you want it." <laughs> Sounds like he had just a, a, a funny sense of humor, huh? It was quite the character. He was my hero. Yeah, he really mm. was. Wow. Well, just out of curiosity, I would say he, he was your hero. I know hopefully a lot of us, you know, our dads and moms were our heroes, but what about him just made him somebody that you admired so much? My dad always, and he passed when I was 20. And so uh, that was in 1975. Don't do the math. And so, <laughs> so my dad always let me believe that I could do whatever it was I wanted. And the story behind that is I would walk into his office one day, you know, and I would say, hey, dad, I know what I want to be when I grow up. And he'd say, OK, what? I said, I want to be a double knot spy. And goes, oh, okay. Well, you need to go to college for this. You need to do this kind of work. You need to do this kind of study, and you could probably do that. I said, okay. The next week, I'd come back and, hey, Dad, yeah, I want to be a brain surgeon. <laughs> oh, well, okay. You can do. You have to study this. You have to go to school for that. You know, and he would always lay it out, right? Just <laughs> on the point. The next time I w came back in, I said, Dad, I got it. I got. It. I want to be an interpreter for the United Nations. Oh, well, you can, well, yeah, you can do that. This is what you've got to study, and this is what you got to, the, the next time I did that, I walked in and I said, Dad, I got it. I got it. This is it. I want to be a lawyer. And he looked at me and he goes over my dead body. <laughs> bravo, bravo. <laughs> yeah, that was one, one step was too dad. far. <laughs> Boy, well, how, what an amazing role model. I mean, I'm sure he's probably who he was and how he, you know, treated you and all is probably has been inspirational how you try to help others, I would assume. You know, it's, uh, do you ever say to yourself, gee, what, what would dad do in this situation kind of thing? Oh, always. You know, it's so funny because that that's how I honor men. And mm -hmm. when I do my public speaking and when I do bring things up, I hope that I can inspire young men to be that kind of an image and that kind of a role model for their daughters because mm -hmm. it's so needed right now and at the same time i inspire moms mm -hmm. to get their sons you know get them back on the whack here we've got to, we've got to make sure that they, they Boy, grow what, up right you know, know that, that would be that would be a whole nother uh talk and that would be a great book but you know traditionally you had dads working i don't know 80 100 hours a week and hey you know it's, it's changed a bit but 30, 40 years ago, it's like, okay, you know, I bring home the bacon and my wife raises the kids and, you know, which is obviously not helpful or, or right, but just this kind of um, check out or obviously some are either checked out or abusive. And so, I mean, there are good dads. Obviously, I have three kids in my 20s. And I do my level best to be engaged. And uh, I know it's hard. Which, I know. But um, yeah, those times when they're small, they, they go 
so fast. And so, you know, it's yeah. funny. This, I mean, I, I want to kind of shift here because, but yeah, you, you sort of really got me thinking here. So wasn't what I was going to, we would talk about necessarily, but it's all good. I, one of the things I think of that I'm blessed by with my kids, you know, we write cards at birthdays and I love writing. And so a lot of my kids are good at that too. And my, I have two sons and a daughter. My, my boys are, got the more athletic genes, which actually from their mother, I'm not that athletic, but my wife is anyway. But the boys, you know, they played soccer and tennis and pretty much every car they said, you know, dad, thank you so much. You're at my soccer game and practices. And they're, they're like in their twenties, every single car they say that. So just the thought of just showing up for something as small as your kids' activities, whether it's soccer, you know, ballet, recitals, whatever it is, it doesn't feel like much, but it must be because every single card they've written over the last, I don't know, X years, they always say that. I love that. And those are the memories. Those are the things that we leave behind. Uh, my dad had two favorite sayings that I, I always love. One of them was, a frog is pretty to another frog. <laughs> <laughs> and I won't go into the details of that, but he did explain that to me a lot. <laughs> okay, Dad, unpack this a bit more. Well, where are we going with this? <laughs> the other one was, you know what? Don't take life too serious. If you're right. not dying and you're not going to jail, everything else is second place. That is. So just relax. <laughs> that is so good. So um, I want to kind of talk a bit about, you've had a couple crucibles. I know there was one that you had was a kind of eerily uh, familiar with the world that we live in now with, with COVID. So talk about that, um, kind of that first one and maybe sort of the background to you know, what were you doing professionally as all this happened? Because you've led a very busy life and very active. Right. And I was fortunate enough to be the chief of staff of global IT for the SAP division, uh, mm -hmm. Hewlett Packard mm -hmm. at that time. And I was a project manager for infrastructure, you know, a lot of downing buildings and upping buildings kind of a thing, <laughs> you know, and for those in IT, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> but uh, we decided that, you know, before, because we have, um, my husband and I had three of his, two of mine and two of ours. So we were down to the two of ours. Everybody else was married and God, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I figured the last, you know, before we get to the point where your kids say, okay, you know, I'm not going on vacation with you. That's embarrassing. <laughs> you know, before they got to that, I figured, you know, we'd pull them into the living room and I'd say, okay, guys, pick a country. I want to see the world. I want to see countries. So we all decided uh, there was two factors involved in that. One is it had to be wonderful. And two, there had to be a Disney property on there because we had Disney vacation <laughs> club points and we got free hotels whenever we went. So, of course, the first one on our list was Disney Tokyo, right? Tokyo Disney in Japan. And so uh, we got our flights, got everything over there. The first thing that I noticed as we got off, this was 10 years ago, this was 2010, was as soon as we got off the plane, not only were we taller and a little bit bigger than most Japanese people, but every single person everywhere was wearing masks in Japan. And, you know, because everything in subways, right? You ride the subways for everything there. And so I was like, we're good Americans. What could possibly happen in seven days, right? Let's just don't worry about it. So we went and saw everything. What happened was that without knowing it on the way back, uh, which was, you know, a 17 hour flight, I noticed there was a lot of coughing on the plane. And so didn't think anything of it. We landed back in December. By the middle of January, I was getting coffee. It was just dry hack. 
not productive coughs at all, just mm. dry heck. And it was getting to where I was doing it so that you were coughing, you know, so much you you got your headache, right? You've had, we've all had coughs like that where you get the headache. And then those by February, and I had already started going to doctors to find out what it was. And, you know, I mean, we're in Houston. We've got oil refineries here. The, the air is not that great, right? And, and plus we're at sea level, right? So, I mean, I got seven doctors, seven different diagnoses, asthma, you name it. I mean, everything. And that, that turned out to be even worse because by the end of February, I was like having all out coughing attacks every five minutes, not five minutes to go by. And on March the 7th, I remember being in the living room when my husband was watching a football game and I had one of these attacks. I was sitting on the couch and I heard my rib crack. I mm. broke a rib from coughing. Oh my gosh. And I looked at him and I said, not only can I not stop coughing, but this is really painful. And we headed off to the emergency room. And um, after 10 days, uh, they decided the main thing they could keep me alive with was intravenous steroids. And for those of you who have ever had intravenous steroids, you know that they burn going in. So like every oh. vein, you know, would, the thing would last two or three days and then it was burned out. Right. And so after those 10 days, I remember they I was in ICU. I couldn't stop coughing. They couldn't control it. They didn't know what the hell was going on. And so a doctor, and I'll never forget her. She's the most beautiful little doctor. She's a beautiful blonde. It was her first day. She was a pulmonologist. And she walked in and she said, let's do a bronchoscopy. and Let's find out what's really going on here. And sure enough, H1N1 came out in the wash. And I was like, you know, patient zero in my opinion for what the heck was going on. So yes, I had SARS. And it was just, wow, talk about life-changing. After that, I mean, from one day to the next, you're already in ICU, but now you're in ICU and they're wearing yellow hazmat suits around mm. you. So the good news was that we had a cure, okay, so to speak. It took a while, but it, we had a cure. And it was called Tamiflu. And Tamiflu worked really well against H1N1. We don't have that now. You know, there's still no Tamiflu for what's going on right now. And so 37 days later, I'm still in ICU. Nobody, I couldn't get any family. Nobody could come visit. And um, they moved me to a hospice. And uh, I didn't know what the hell that meant. <laughs> I really did. I, in my, with my Hispanic background, I figured, okay, if this is my time, you know, I'm going to get the angels. I'm going to get my grandparents. My father's going to stand at the edge of the bed. I'm going to see some relatives saying, come on. They never showed up. So <laughs> nobody ever showed up. I was all by myself in this hospital room, <laughs> you know, wondering where the family was. So I guess I wasn't supposed to leave then, right? Now, I need to tell you that my background has always been very, very athletic. I was either a dancer or a swimmer. And uh, I mean, I, my sister and I did the 50 mile swim and we taught swimming all our lives. So I was, I remember that they, they took me down in the wheelchair the first time out of my room to go to therapy. And I remember seeing, you know, all the tables and then they had these little bicycles with the pedals, you know, that you, you get pedaled. And I was like, piece of cake man i could do you know i can he says i want you to do one minute on this and i'm like sure and i couldn't do it i couldn't do one minute mm. what had happened was that the fibrous you know the shards of glass so to speak that sars brings into your lungs had so heavily compromised right my right lung that it was so scarred that it was not 
really functional. So I had to learn how to walk again, how to talk again, how to breathe again. I couldn't get one sentence out without running out of air, and I couldn't walk 30 steps to the bathroom. So when I was finally allowed to go home, and thanks to intravenous steroids, I was like 210 pounds now, right? <laughs> so I was just totally bloated. And when you do uh, steroids for that long, you start losing your eyesight. Oh. And yeah, yeah, because I mean, I couldn't, I remember looking up at the TV in the hospital room and I couldn't see the screen at all. And I was, that's when I told my doctor and she immediately sent in, you know, an eye doctor and, and we kind of cured that. But I was also a diabetic and I was on 27 pills twice a day when, by the time I got home. That was uh, my experience with this. So it scares the heck out of me that, you know, when I, when I hear what's going on, people really, you need to take this serious. This is not, it's not about your freedom. It's not about all that. Just put on a mask. Well, you don't end up like me. Just right. don't. You oh know? my gosh. Absolutely. And I mean, that's such a horrific thing to have gone through, especially having been athletic. It was obviously life changing. I Very mean, much so. I mean, I guess, and now, obviously, they would, you know, be having a COVID test in a heartbeat. But back then, I guess it wasn't really that widespread in the U.S. And people didn't know about it. I mean, you know, when bad things happen, you sometimes think, well, why couldn't they give me that bronchial test like day one rather than day 50 or whatever it was? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I'm not a doctor, but it's like, OK, you're coughing. Why wouldn't you do some bronchial test? But I mean, what do I know? But did those thoughts run through your mind? It's like. Maybe I could have had that other long if they'd kind of done some tests earlier or. You know, I'm, I'm lucky and I'm glad and God had other plans for me, obviously. But I remember laying, you know, you come back, you lay down in your bed and you feel like this blob. So I decided to start going through. I still had my laptop, so I decided to start going through a couple of things. And, and the reason for that was my sister who passed from cancer. She was the tomboy in the family, and I was the girly girl. And so she was always rough and tough and doing some amazing things. I could hear her voice. Every time I'd start feeling sorry for me, she was like right in my ear going, yeah, get over it. <laughs> you know, that was her thing. Get over it. And I was, I was like, okay, okay, I'll figure out what I need to do. So I set up a plan. I call it the 30-30 plan. It was 30 minutes for 30 days of half hour shows. And the first one I picked was Joel Olstein. Mm -hmm. And then the second one was um, the the very tough lady who's also a minister preacher because she reminded me of my sister. Uh, Joyce Myers? Joyce, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I watched them and then I decided to start learning how to breathe again so that I could get a sentence out, right? And on in YouTube, there was a breathing method from a doctor from Russia called Dr. Buteyko, B-U-T-E-Y-K-O. Hmm. And I started listening and understanding all about breathing. The other thing I figured out was that, you know, there's two types of people that are in much worse shape than I was, and they're still getting through it. So, you know, what's my problem? <laughs> you know, so the first one, is, and I did a lot of studies. I read all the Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. I went to the Mayo Clinic. I mean, I did as much research as I could, but the two people were people who had completely compromised immune systems, you know, the AIDS people, the HIV mm -hmm. people. And then we had the people who were going through chemo and cancer. So that was my reasoning is, you know, it could be worse. 
So get over it, right? <laughs> so. Wow. Well, you know, it's funny. One of the things you mentioned in um, kind of prep form, you, you, you said it kind of resonates here, you know, never give up, never surrender, which kind of sounds like almost a, a, a Winston Churchill yeah, kind of thing, <laughs> which, is, which is awesome. Believe in God, believe in yourself, double your faith. I mean, did those sorts of themes, was that part of what helped you not just come back physically, but then emotionally, probably your, the you know, amount of athletic things you could do is probably different. So there was some right. probably having to relearn, but also accept that life will be a bit different and not feel sorry for yourself. And you Very know. much so. Very much so. And yeah, I, I have to fall back on the Galaxy Quest motto, <laughs> never give up, never surrender. <laughs> but but uh, <laughs> I mean, absolutely. But, yeah, the reality is, yeah. The choice is ultimately yours. You can sit there and mm. feel sorry for yourself for the rest of your life. You can have every reason in the world for not walking again or not being able to go back, you know, to whatever kind of a life. I couldn't even imagine that I could never speak again because, I mean, I've been a speaker. Mm. I've been, you know, a producer. I've been in cast forever. And so uh, getting one sentence out was I really had to build back to it. And by the way, when you overdo it and you've only got one lung, <clears throat> the lung that's working goes like this. Mm. <laughs> like, stop. <laughs> and at that point, you got to remember to sit down and shut up <laughs> until it releases. So your body regulates you, you know, when mm. you're about to overdo it. So I'm one of the few people, you know, that take nitro to release the lung, not the heart. <laughs> wow. Well, I know, unfortunately, you've not just had one, but two crucibles. But before we shift to the second one, it's just interesting to me, your attitude of, uh, you know, being positive, do what you need to do, you know, research uh, Johns Hopkins Mayo Clinic, figure out how you can get back and get healthy, accept the fact that we have limits. We all have limits, which is a whole nother discussion and, you know, um, trying to understand what that is, but also not be bitter. You could have been angry at doctors. You could say, whose idea was it to go to Japan in the first place? I mean, you know, <laughs> oh, well, I suppose probably fortunate maybe that it wasn't <laughs> husband or the kids or whatever. But yeah, I mean, when things happen, it's easy to dwell in anger and bitterness. And as we've said in other podcasts, obviously, sometimes somebody does something and needs to be consequences. And that's obviously fair and it has to happen. But, you know, being angry at the world or whatever, it doesn't serve you. And so clearly you knew that and you didn't go there. You know, you didn't dwell in anger and bitterness or feeling sorry for yourself. You just sort of got on with it, you know, got better, had a positive attitude, had, you know, spiritual influences. So that's, there are some lessons learned for people who go through difficult crucibles, certainly health crucibles. And I would add one thing to that, Warwick, for the listener. Uh, Go back 10 minutes, 12 minutes to when Tony started talking about this very traumatic, very life-threatening experience that she had with SARS and listen to the way she talked about it. Listen to what life is like on the other side of that experience. I almost felt bad that I was laughing with her as she was talking about what happened because she talks about it with such humor. She talks about it with such joy and what it's like on the other side. You may feel like your experience right now, listener, your crucible is that 
that very traumatic thing that you may not be able to get back from. We are in the in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic as we have this conversation. You or someone you may know may indeed be fighting that disease. And I hope that you can camp out in the last 12 minutes of this conversation and hear the energy, the laughter, and the perspective that Tony has brought to her truly traumatic experience because that, I think it's fair to say, Tony, is your attitude through that one of the reasons that got you through it? I think so, too. And to finalize the story, I'm sitting on a plane going to a speaker conference back probably December, right? And I always sit at the very first row by the window all to myself. And I, and by the way, I use those little nose plugs, the HEPA filters mm-hmm. called uh, uh, First Defense, which I found on Shark Tank, by the way. <laughs> so you just put these little HEPA filters on your nose. And this is before mass, right? And so I always sit up front. And that flight, this beautiful lady sat next to me with this gorgeous coat. And I, we started a conversation. And I know we're going to, I'll do it fast, Gary, for you. It ended up that she was the pulmonologist in charge of about seven hospitals here in Houston. And so that led me to, hey, have you met Dr. Pupala? He was my pulmonologist and Dr. Nagandi, which I love as a sister because she saved my life, you know, that time. And she goes, yes, I know Dr. Pupala. And she said, uh, so I told her my story. And she looked at me and we talked for maybe 30 minutes. And as we were getting off the plane, she goes, Tony, I know all about your story. We talk about you. When we have our meetings, we all know about you. I just can't believe I'm finally meeting you. Wow. So when she said that, I mean, she could have been talking medically, but I have a feeling she was talking more than that, just about your spirit and your spirit of hope. Was that what you read into that comment? I didn't read into it at the beginning. I just, I, I don't know, I keep seeing myself as the guinea pig, you know. <laughs> but we both had a good laugh. And uh, she invited me to speak to the hospitals when she got back. And of course, everything went crazy after that. But I just thought it was so interesting that I, I, I guess I'm a celebrity of sorts <laughs> with the uh, <laughs> pulmonologist community. In I have a feeling it was your spirit as much as the medical side that had an impact. I don't know, but I have a sense that it that had an impact on uh, the pulmonologist and the folks. So. I want to ask about the, the second crucible is interesting because it really leads into what you do now. And you had a, I don't know, job change, challenge, uh, downsizing. I don't know quite how you frame it. So talk a bit about what was the setting that led to that kind of second uh, crucible? Well, it's uh, actually my book will be really my print copy of my book will be released in, in September, September 30th. It's called Act Two. Uh, your show must go on. And it's it was written originally dedicated to the boomers because so many of us have found out the hard way that the American dream is dead. Is that, you know, we were taught, as, as you were saying earlier, Warwick, we were taught, you know, that you go to school and you get a job and you climb the ladder and, you, you know, you, you get the golden parachute and then you're fine. And that's not happening. And through my research, and it's funny because it actually hit this year, uh, through my research, I knew that we had 45 to 48 million boomers out of work, uh, laid off, separated, fired from your job. And I was estimating, based on research, that within the next seven to 10 years, we were going to hit the 68 million. Well, guess what happened this year? It's not just boomers. It's everybody. We've hit the 60 million and so souls out of a job right now. 
So what the book does is it concentrates on giving them what I call the four agreements, so to speak. You know, the first agreement is, you know, get your resume ready. Let's go find you another job. The second one is the franchise industry is booming. Buyer, caveat import, please. Buyer, beware. The third choice is become a mentor. And the number one question I get when I talk about that is how do we monetize that? And the fourth agreement, the fourth road, your choice is to become, which is the one I'm hoping they will take, is to become an entrepreneur. And so, because that's what opens the way. If you're going to kill yourself for the rest of your life, do it for you. Makes, <laughs> makes so much sense. So what led you to that shift? I mean, what kind of job were you in when life changed? I was on disability okay. with HP and I didn't know it then, but if I had stayed on disability, I would have had 18 months of pay for uh, about 70 to 80% of my income. Right. But I was told that, you know, come back to work, we'll take care of you, we'll let you work from home, all the, uh, we'll make all the arrangements. And within 60 days, I was laid off. So not only did I not have any more income, I didn't have uh, insurance. And because of uh, SARS, I was 100% not insurable for life insurance as well. I consider having that happen to us worse than a divorce because your income's gone too. And then you're sitting there going, oh my gosh, who's going to hire me? And at that point I was 57 and I was, I mean, obviously I had to train five people to take over my job, three in India and two in Mexico. And I, um, I, wow, that hurt. That was a painful, painful experience. I mean, heck, it takes you three months to stop checking your email because that's mm. what we've been for so long, you know, uh, especially boomers. We are our jobs. We are our title. And you work for, like you said, 60, 70, 80 hour weeks. And for so long that you, you don't realize until you look back everything you gave up, you know, how you couldn't go to the kids performances or plays or you're always having to ask somebody for permission to let you off your work and sometimes you don't get it to go to important family functions and I was able to put my entire life in perspective and and you know what I, I messed up I just there was so much more we could have done family wise that I was always putting my job I was always putting my job in front of it and so that was a that was a good slap in the face so it, it's I mean with that particular crucible, it sounds like there are a whole bunch of lessons. I mean, there's some commonalities with the other crucible that you're not somebody that sits there and says, oh, woe is me, I'm a victim, or it doesn't seem like that's not Tony Kaufman. But yeah. I mean, obviously, it'd be easy to say, well, that was unfair. You know, I'm doing a great job. And for whatever reasons, they make their decision. So there was plenty of opportunity for you to be bitter and angry if you chose. doesn't mean that you condone or think it was fair, but you chose not to go, you know, the uh, sort of the anger, uh, vindictive route. Well, I'm going to give you yeah. the final crucible. Okay. My sister died of cancer. Oh. My father had uh, cirrhosis of the liver. My mom had cancer. My little brother got cancer. And if you look at the, my maiden name, Gary, is M-U-N-O-Z. If you look for the Munoz Borough Pits, on Google, that's the 40 acres I was raised on. We wow. were raised on EDT. Oh, no. The Hay Salmons plant, which is a division of Halliburton, oh. had a poison DDT plant 
literally next to the playground of one of our elementary schools. Oh. And my father, they paid my father to go dump the red dirt oh. over by the lake. We had 40 acres and we had a two acre pond and a 15 acre lake. And it was just funny because I we had hills of red smelly dirt that my little brother and I and my sister, I mean, we, we played, you know, cowboys and Indians and all that kind of stuff. And we had, all I knew was that the dirt was smelly. And every time it rained, the entire fish population of our pond would die and they'd be floating. And that's what I remember of the 48. Mm. That was where we were raised. And that's why my father died at 57 and my sister died at 52. And my little brother just passed this last May. And my mom had cancer back in the 80s. And so what good would it do? And by the way, I think uh, we were given less than $2,000 in reparations is what Seriously? I got. Seriously? For that? Seriously. I mean, that you probably look at that. So that's what my dad and sister brother are worth, really? That's it? That's I it. mean, it, And we, I haven't been paid for that yet. I've, I just signed the settlement because uh, that's all we're going to get. Wow. I mean, how do you avoid being so angry about how could, did these people know? Did they not care? How could this happen? I mean, how do you not just get so angry and bitter? I mean, that's, I don't know how that's possible not to go there. I've always been a firm believer that you get what you look for. And I mean, if you're looking for the bad, you're going to find it. If you're looking for the good, you're going to find it. And you know what? The retribution, justice, Everything that you hope would happen, it's not in my hands. There's mm-hmm. other people that are going to have to pay for that mm-hmm. when they walk through those gates. And it mm-hmm. wouldn't do me any good. And there's so, we were some of the fortunate ones. There were literally children being born around that elementary school with one eyeball or no brains or, oh. you know, the entire city. I mean, that was a huge settlement. And shame on them, but they're not going to change my life. Wow. So you really despite all of these hardships, it feels like this doesn't take you down. I mean, you're obviously one, you know, you, you used the expression about your sister, like she was the tough one. I don't know, maybe you both kind of have some of that stern, <laughs> tough fiber in you, right? Maybe it's from your parents, I don't know, but it sounds like you're every bit as tough as your sister was in, in the best sense of that word. That's remarkable. And so, You've had all these circumstances. You've had this what feels like a you know unfair uh, removal from that company, and yet you kind of reinvented yourself and used all that you've been through to help others. So talk a bit about kind of you've chatted a bit about those four ways, and you you love mentoring and entrepreneurship. So talk about you know how you reinvented yourself and then how you help others in a sense reinvent themselves. When I got laid off, my husband says, "Hey, look at this positively." Think to yourself, you've been given an opportunity. Go to what made you the absolute happiest work that you would do for free. And my brain immediately shot back to the mid-1970s, and I was the producer of about five hours a day of local origination programming for one of the first Valley cable television stations. (laughs) And so if you ever saw the Weird Al movie called UHF or VHF, yes. Oh, that was my life. I was the person in the dog <laughs> costume. I was doing the children's shows. I was running cameras for local bishops, you know, who wanted to have yep. a 30 minute conversation. And, uh, and so I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to play, but I wanted to concentrate on people who are literally making a difference in this world. 
and have the altruistic heart that even you have, Warwick and Gary. You have the need to make this world a better place than how we found it. And that is the speakers, authors, healers, and coaches world. And that's what I've been playing in. So with KDDM, who will soon be standoutuniverse.com, we are offering speakers, authors, healers, coaches, and boomers who are in transition the opportunity to monetize, to create a company, to make it grow, to serve others. And you know what? I haven't met one person yet that isn't trying to change the world, be the change they're trying to be, they're trying to see, and or help others. And that's what I love about our community. I mean, that's a wonderful vision. You know, a lot of some people want to change the world, but it's like, how do I put food on the table for my kids and, you know, parents, grandparents, extended family, depending on their situation? And it sounds like your vision is to help people change the world, but also, you know, monetize, which for most people is like, if I can't monetize this, I can't do it, you know? And so that's, I mean, you know, it's easy to be cynical in this world because there's a lot of bad things happen and sadly some people doing very bad things. But yet there are people out there that people have hope that want to make a difference, that want to help others, want to care. So it must be so affirming to be around those people, to hear their hearts and their visions. And it must make you think, gosh, I get to go to work today and listen to somebody's hopes and dreams. I know. What could be better than that? Happen. I, isn't that cool? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is, and I love doing it. So how you monetize it is, uh, you know, I've got some mentors, and of course they create courses to help mm-hmm. people. They create uh, what I call a signature talk that takes them to a webinar, that takes them to an event, whether it's a three-day live event or a three-day or a one-day, you know, a summit, so to speak. And that's basically, you know, that's been a lifesaver this year is that all these live conferences and live events you used to go to are now live online events. And guess whose producer (laughs) background gets to help people create live online events. That's part of what we've got. And, you know, it's really been a lifesaver for us. You know, it's funny how, you know, we have different things in our background and I think, you know, for spiritual people of faith, which, you know, I think you obviously are, at the time, you don't know how God, universe is going to use all these strands, but it's like, so what was the point of all that 70s stuff and dressing up in weird costumes and interviewing bishops (laughs) and whoever? I mean, where's all that going to go? Well, how in the world were you to know that a number of years later, you were able to use those things in a way to help others, right? I'm sure you probably didn't see it at the time, but it make, does make you feel like somehow there's a plan, even if we don't realize it at the time. Does that make sense? Well, you know, Steve Jobs said it best. When he did his one of his uh, talks at Yale, he said, you know, um, and I know Gary's checking his watch now, so we've got to we've <laughs> It's all good. It's all good. Yeah. It's all good. He dropped out of the, of the university, right? And as he looks back, dropping out allowed him to take only the classes he wanted to take. His favorite class was on a calligraphy. Huh. All right, so talk about connecting the dots backwards, right? <laughs> yeah. So what does you know what does Apple do? They create the graphic artist machine with all these wonderful fonts, right? And so the, huh. Apple becomes the graphic artist tool of choice because yeah. it had so much artistic calligraphy fonts that came with it at a time when Windows hadn't created true type fonts yet, right? Right. So he says the only way that you know that you get enough faith to leap forward is if you look behind you and connect the dots because you can only connect them backwards. 
And if they connect to enough places, enough times, that it will give you the faith and the impetus to grow forward, to take that leap of faith, because you just saw how the puzzle connected behind you. Right. And it gives yeah. you hope to take that next step. So that's um, my favorite statement from him. That's amazing. I mean, when, when you're helping people, what's um, it's probably all fun, but what's the most fun thing about what you uh, do in helping people? What kind of makes the light bulb oh wattage go? The, the, the personalities. I see the celebrity within when I, I mean, casting has helped a lot, right? Yeah. There's but another I see element. the celebrity here, and sometimes they don't see it, but I can right. see it just by listening to them, talking to them. And then if, um, I think one of my favorite mentors is Iman, a guy, and he says something like, if you can get people to see themselves the way you see them, then we've accomplished what we needed to accomplish to get them to spring forward. And that sounds like maybe your mission to help the world see these people the way you see them, right? Uh, give me the challenge. So, Go gosh, I mean, it's like <laughs> you must wake up in the morning saying, I get to do this. I mean, it probably feels like, you know, to, you know, you, you mentioned Disneyland in a, you know, more challenging <laughs> uh, way before, but in a good way, because obviously it is a wonderful <laughs> place. It must feel like Disneyland every day. It's well, like, I'll know. let you know that I was the person who choreographed and came out with Mickey, Minnie, Goofy, and Pluto at all the back-to-school specials <laughs> in, in Midwest United States, from Brownsville to Chicago. We did 11 malls, we did 11 shows, and I was the idiot that would come out singing and dancing with the mouse. <laughs> <laughs> and, you ready for this? Hold on to your hat, Gary. I was right. Scooby-Doo. I was inside of Scooby-Doo. No, really? <laughs> we did the Scooby-Doo show. <laughs> wow. So with your kids, and I see, do you have grandkids at all? Oh, or? I've got 11 grandkids now. So do they ever say, you know, grandma, or I know there's Dan or different names. Do they ever say, can you do Scooby-Doo? Can you do Mickey or Minnie? Do they ever kind of say that to you? <laughs> you know, they have it, but it's so funny. Uh, um, my kids had the, 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 I don't know if that was a pleasure or not. They were probably the only, the few kids in the world who would walk in to see me during lunch breaks and would see Mickey, Minnie, Pluto, and Goofy's head sitting on a table. <laughs> and I remember my 18-month-old just burst into tears. He thought I had killed them. <laughs> he, he walked in and saw all the heads and then all the bodies, and he just broke out into tears. <laughs> oh, my. Well, this is the moment in the podcast where I normally say it's around the time that we need to land the plane. But given the fact that we just talked about Scooby-Doo, I'm going to say that it's <laughs> it's almost the time we need to hop in the mystery uh, 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 machine and drive away. So we got to get in the mystery machine. We got to uh, drive away in a little bit. But one thing I wanted to say to you, uh, Tony, because mentoring and urging people, encouraging people to be mentors, you've benefited from them. You have benefited others being a mentor. I just did a quick search for quotes about mentoring, and there's a bunch of really good stuff here. But here's what Denzel Washington said about mentoring, which I think really sums up a lot of the joy that we hear in your voice or see in your face if we're watching this on YouTube. This is what Denzel Washington said. Show me a successful individual, and I'll show you someone who had real positive influences in his or her life. I don't care what you do for a living. If you do it well, I'm sure there was someone cheering you on or showing you the way. A mentor. 
Boy, you know, Gary, that's so well said, and I'm sure you know you would agree with this, Tony. But mentoring younger people, or as a younger person, being mentored—I mean, I'm somebody that always wanted to learn from people back in my 20s when people who were older than myself. That combination, if you're younger, seek somebody that you admire. Because if you ask them, hey, you know, do you mind helping me? I just love to chat and get your advice. Most folks who are older would be delighted to help. Sometimes they're reluctant to impose themselves. But somehow I think in our society, in, in other societies or decades gone by, mentoring, especially within families, happened more. Maybe it happens less now, but it's so important. So, I mean, how do you help some of this mentoring happen, both from younger to older and, you know, these sort of relationships? So important, but do you have any sort of work, sort of wisdom on that or you know, how you help foster mentoring relationships? Yes, um, my two mentors, I mentioned Iman a little while ago, but Jay Fassett, it's so funny, they're both Canadian. (laughs) Those are my two favorite mentors. But here's my my words of advice is the best way to leverage, or as they say in Canada, leverage, (laughs) to leverage the growth, your growth or your business growth is you've got to find somebody who's been there, done that and can walk you through it. You know, why are you trying to find out go through every hardship by yourself get yourself a mentor it can do nothing but help and there's so many available there are just so many available and and worst case if you can't find one talk to me i will recommend someone and to you i'd be happy to. kind of final comment on on this is to me you've got to be humble be humble enough to say i don't know everything and there are some oh, yeah. people that have been down this road decades more than i have so why not learn i mean if you're not humble you're not going to learn so that's sort of, to me, the starting point. Be humble, be open, be willing to learn, and uh, you'll be blessed, as will the mentor be blessed. You've, you've been blessed by a lot of folks that you've mentored. It's it's symbiotic. It's a double yeah. blessing. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that's a wonderful that's- thing. <laughs> we have had a lot of, um, I mean, truly... Um, inspiring conversation and some uh, good applications here. Tony, I would be remiss if I did not give you the opportunity to tell listeners how they can find you and your business on the World Wide Web. How can they get to know more about Tony Kaufman? Uh, It's under construction, but you can go to standoutuniverse.com and you'll be able to see what we're building there. You'll be able to contact me immediately. I respond to everybody who who texts me on Facebook. Uh, Facebook, my main profile is under Tony Munoz, M-U-N-O-Z Kaufman. And that is Um, Tony with an I. I, right. Yeah, my little brother was Tony with a Y. (laughs) (laughs) And my dad was Antonio. And and when my dad passed, my mom named the parrot Tony. So so we always had three Tonys and two Celias. (laughs) But yeah, please feel free. It's Tony at uh, Standout Universe. Or standoutme.com is the the quick way. Standoutme.com, T-O-N-I at. Just reach. I'll I'll listen. Well, Tony, you and Warwick both have made uh, this episode difficult for me. One of the things I do at the end of every episode is try to pull together, and I'm I'm scribbling notes while you know you guys are talking about what are some key takeaways that our listeners can follow. Uh, to help them bounce back from their own crucibles. And uh, I pull three every time, and it was hard to contain myself just to three here because the conversation was so robust. But here's what I think from this conversation 
uh, with Tony and Warwick. Uh, three takeaways for you, listener, that you can apply as you bounce back from your own crucible. Number one, as bad as it gets, and sometimes it gets very, very bad, circumstantially, physically, and emotionally. Tony described that in her battle with SARS, how difficult that was. But as bad as it gets, do not give up. Hatch a comeback plan. Uh, in Tony's case, with SARS, she developed a breathing plan. She started with a breathing plan. Study, develop action steps, practice. Your crucible can be fought through. And as Tony said, the choice is ultimately yours. Takeaway number two. Explore your options in the midst of and in the aftermath of your crucible. Take a long look at what you'd like to do. What are your passions? What are you really good at? What does the world need that you can offer? Then either find an opportunity where you can uh, make your vision and passion a reality, or as Tony suggests and has lived, create an opportunity yourself. Become an entrepreneur and do your own thing. It's worked out well for her. It's worked out well for Warwick. It can work out well for you as well. And then the third point, um, which we just talked about at the end of the conversation, and Warwick had a, this is a key part of crucible leadership, this idea of mentoring, being a mentor and having mentors. So look in the aftermath of your crucible, in the midst of your crucible, look for an opportunity to mentor. The world needs what you know. So share it and get yourself a mentor because you need what other people in the world know. As Warwick explained, it's a symbiotic uh, relationship. It's a 360 fully, you know, it's the circle of life, if you will. Mentoring and being mentored is a critical part of bouncing back from a crucible. And that has been our discussion as it always is here on Beyond the Crucible. How do you navigate through and bounce back from those crucible experiences in your life? Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Tony Kaufman. If you did enjoy it, we ask that you would uh, visit us at crucibleleadership.com. Uh, you can find all the podcast episodes that we've done so far there. You can sign up to uh, get Warwick's regular emails where he uh, shares more details, some, unpacks more some of the concepts of crucible leadership that can help you in your effort to bounce back, to move beyond your crucible, as the show is called. So until the next time that we're together having a conversation about um, how to face your crucibles head on, no matter how painful they may be, Thank you for joining us here. And remember this as you go and rewind this episode, like I said earlier, and listen to the way Tony Kaufman described her crucible of almost losing her life to H1N1. Remember in listening to her spirit as she talked about that, that your crucible is painful. It can be extraordinarily challenging. It could even be life-threatening. But it does not have to be the worst time of your life. If you learn the lessons of that crucible, if you apply yourself to moving beyond that crucible, it can become the launching pad. It can become the beginning of the next chapter of your life, which is the best chapter of your life. Because as we've seen from what Tony's talked about today, and we've seen every time we've had a conversation with Warwick, bouncing back from your crucible is your first step 
toward a life of significance.